This is from Romans 14, 1 through 9. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is the word of the Lord. you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, nothing in this world happens by accident. You know the end from the beginning. You have ordained that all things, all things work out for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. So Father, through the ages you caused this word to be first spoken, then written down, then passed down to us for our good through the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words. Work in our hearts to hear your word with joy, with faith, and to go from this place changed by you. We ask it through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Before I begin, I want to give a special thanks to the mothers who are here today with their kids whose fathers are at the retreat. That's a sacrifice. It's tough to get the kids up. It's tough to get them to church. And do all that by yourself. When, you, when your husband gets home, tell him you deserve a medal. Or at least a nice date. But thank you for making it possible for the guys to go this weekend. This is, a, this is the first men's retreat that I have missed. I look forward to going to others. It is a spiritually powerful event in the lives of the men of our church. Thank you for making it possible. I want you to uh, not go back to the future, but go back to the past. We're going to take a time machine, a time travel machine trip back to the 1930s Mississippi Delta. It's hot out. The sun bakes that red clay to a brick-like hardness, but nevertheless manages to wear itself off on the soles of your feet. Dust gets everywhere. And for a young black man who's the son of a sharecropper, about 12, 12 years old at this point, 
It's a miserable place to be. Jesse Brown and his three brothers were walking home from their one-room schoolhouse along a dirt road where in the opposite direction was coming a school bus from the other school for the other kids. Every day, this bus would pass Jesse and his brothers, and every day, the boys on the bus would stick their heads out the windows and yell at them and curse them and call them names and spit at them. This day was a little different. Jesse told his brothers, go stand by the side of the road, and if I say run, you run. And he went to the cornfield and grabbed a cornstalk, and when the school bus came by and all the kids were sticking their heads out the windows and yelling and everything, he held the cornstalk up against the side of the bus, right down the side. There was pandemonium inside the bus, which came to a quick stop. And this great, big, old white man came over and stood over Jesse saying, Son, what just happened? Jesse explained to the guy what happened every day when he drove his bus along that road, what those kids on the bus did to him and his brothers. There was a long silence. The man looked at Jesse, looked at his brothers, looked back at the bus, and walked back to the bus where all the kids were still hanging out the windows and yelling threats and curses and wreaking havoc. When he got on the bus, there was a mighty shout, and suddenly there was silence. He could hear the driver talking to the kids for a while, and the bus drove off. What was Jesse doing? He saw himself as the protector of his younger brothers. So he stood in the gap between those who were persecuting them to take the harm upon himself if necessary, but to protect his brothers. What did the bus driver do? Remember, this is 1930s Mississippi. This is before the Civil Rights Movement. This is not a high point in the history of our country. That driver could have ignored them. He could have made matters worse, let the kids on the bus run loose over, the, over Jesse and his brothers. Instead, he went back and he stopped the evil. The strong took care of the weak. Jesse for his brothers, the driver for Jesse and his brothers. The passage that we have here today was preached a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, really. And the idea there was those who think that they're strong versus those who consider themselves weak or who are considered weak by others. Today, I want to take that same thing and look at some of the further implications of it. I'm convinced that this passage does not say that the strong glory in their strength or that the weak grovel in their weaknesses but rather that the strong take care of the weak, whoever the strong think that they are. They don't glory in their own strength. Instead, they take care of the weak. You see this in three different ways. First, our lives are not our own. Therefore, we belong to another, the strong who takes care of the weak. Our good is not our own. We live to build up one another in Christ. We don't live for ourselves. Finally, our glory is not our own. We live for the glory of God. 
who took care of us. So let's look at the passage together. Verse 4, who are you to, ser- to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will stand. He will be upheld. The Lord is able to make him stand. Go down to verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. I like history. You may have noticed. So we'll, we'll be doing this time traveling thing all along this passage. We're going to go forward about five years from the incident with Jesse and his brothers. It's now 1943. The United States has entered World War II. There is a desperate battle for the freedom of the, the island kingdom of England. Things are not going well for the Allies. They are desperately trying to bring over men and materials just to keep England alive until they reach a point where they could begin to take the fight to the enemy. On this day in late December 1943, the SS Dorchester, which is a passenger liner designed to carry about 300 people and the crew, is loaded with 903 men, wall-to-wall soldiers, making the dangerous North Atlantic Passage from Newfoundland to Greenland. The waters are full of German U-boats, submarines. They know that the U-boat is in the area because one of the escort ships heard it on its sonar, but they don't know where. They know that if they're found, if they're seen, they'll be attacked. The captain of the ship told the men, all 900 plus of them, to go down to their holds, fully dressed, wearing their life jackets in case they were attacked. But you know what? It's hot in the ship. It's so hot that the men disregard orders. They start taking off their shoes. They take off their life jackets. They take off their coats. And they lay there sweltering in the heat. In the meantime, up top, it is so cold. There's a winter storm blowing. There's so much wind and, and ice that there becomes a coating of ice on the ship that is a foot thick on the superstructure. Think of how much a foot of ice weighs on the top of a ship being tossed back and forth in the ocean. That's a dangerous situation. The captain has to slow the ship. And somewhere in the darkness, about 12.55 in the morning, a U-boat finds them, sends a single torpedo. The one torpedo hits the ship just below the engine room, knocks out steam, knocks out electricity. There's no power to blow the whistle to let other ships know we're in trouble. There's no power to blow the, whist- the signal that says to the men on board, abandon ship. There's no electricity to send an SOS. The lights simply go out, which means at one in the morning, during a storm, no moon, no stars, no light, the men in the holds of the ship are in total darkness. Because of the hit of the torpedo, the ship begins to go down at the bow 
and to tilt sharply to one side. Floors become walls. Stairways become ladders going up the side at an angle that is almost impossible to find. And all of this is in darkness. The, ref the refrigeration system is hit. Ammonia is released, which is a toxic gas. It's killing men in the holds. And in the middle of all this chaos and nightmare, men are desperately trying to get from the insides of the ship to the outside of the ship. Not sure that was much safer. The water temperature was 34 degrees. The air temperature was 36. The wind was howling. In the middle of this chaos, there were four men. They would later be called the four immortals. Four army chaplains who remained calm, who saw it as their duty to help direct the soldiers to get them up to the top of the ship, to the top deck, to help them find lifeboats, to help them get to safety. In the middle of the chaos, when they found men who had no shoes, they gave them their own shoes. Men who had no jackets, they gave them their own coats. Men who had no life preservers, the chaplains took them off their own bodies and gave them to others. The ship sank in less than 20 minutes. The chaplains were there the entire time, guiding, comforting, encouraging, directing, leading, right up to the moment that the bow went down, the stern went up, and the ship plunged into the depths. They were praying for and ministering to those who were weak, who were without hope. Out of those 903 men, Only 229 survived. Most of those who survived said that their lives were spared because of the efforts of those guys who could have pulled rank. They were in places of safety. They could have left. But the strong took care of the weak. In this case, they did so by giving everything for the men under their care. These days, the tendency in our society is to look out for ourselves, to leave others to their own devices. But as Christians, our goal is to help our brothers and sisters succeed in the Christian life. What does that look like here at Ironworks? Home groups. If you're not in one, repent. We, we have groups that are available, groups that are open. Some years ago, when I first started going to a home group, I thought, this, this is an optional thing. I'll do it when I have time. But as I began to invest in the lives of the people who are in my home group, to begin praying for them, to be prayed for by them, God did some interesting things in my life. He helped me to realize that I'm not self-sufficient. He helped me to realize I am often weak. I need someone who is strong to care for me. And even more remarkably, there were times when I had something that I could give for others. Be part of a home group. It can change your lives. What are other opportunities? Men's and women Bible studies. 
getting the word into our hearts, and at the same time having a chance to grow in our faith by asking questions back and forth. What does God mean when he says to do this, to believe this? What about, you ready for this, Shana? Youth group. Any of you have any idea what is going on in our youth group? Junior high, high school. I don't know where these kids are coming from. But I know that when I was their age, it was the men and women who invested in youth group who made such a difference in my life. It was the guys, my own peers, iron sharpening iron as we learned what it was to follow Christ that made such a difference in my life. These are places where the strong can take care of the weak. Second point, not only are our lives not our own, but our good is not our own. We don't live for ourselves. We live to build one another up in Christ. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he thinks, gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. I have a good friend. We used to meet for lunch every week, back when we worked in the same office. None of us work in the office anymore. What a strange thing. But we, we're both believers. We go to different churches. We do different things. And I remember, I really enjoy our Christmas Eve service. I am thoroughly blessed by the Tenebrae service that we have near Easter and the, the resurrection day that we celebrate Easter morning. My friend, he says, well, our church celebrates Christmas and Easter every Sunday. And I always stop and think, that means you never celebrate it. But what he means is that every Sunday, he thinks of Christ, the incarnate one, who gave himself for the sins of his people. I can't judge him for that. And I don't think he judges me because there are days that I hold in particular regard celebrating Christ come to earth. Christ crucified, dead, and buried. Christ raised from the dead. Rather than cutting each other down for what we believe, we support and affirm one another and say, you are the Lord's. You belong to him. God bless you in what you do. You know, this building up one of another is something that, that kind of works its way out in strange ways. Still, 1943, still uh, toward the end, almost Christmas, December 20th. The Army Air Force, there was no U.S. Air Force at that time, but the U.S. Army Air Force was flying bombing missions against German manufacturing plants. They would fly from England across the North Sea and down into Germany. They would do this in huge formations of bombers, hundreds of planes. And the Germans would shoot at these planes using something called flak guns. Not Aflac, that's a different thing, flak. 
where you shoot a, a cannon shell up into the air that explodes and sends metal fragments all over the place, hoping to hit something and to damage it. They said that the flak over Bremen, where this particular attack was going, was so thick, if you could have gotten out of the plane, you could have walked across it. This particular plane was being flown by Charlie Brown. No, he didn't wear a striped T-shirt. Charlie Brown was flying Ye old Pub. You know, that was back in the day when they had extra E, so old had to have an extra E at the end of it. His ship, his, his airplane, was located at the lead of the formation, one of the most dangerous places, because that was the, the plane that guided the rest of the formation to the target. On that day, when the flak was so bad, the plane got hit repeatedly. The nose of the plane was blown off. Half of the rudder was blown off. Half of the left aileron was lost. The tail gunner was killed. Of the, other, of the 11 crewmen, one died, and eight were injured, including the pilot. The, ship had so, the airplane had so many holes in it, you could see through to the people inside. I don't know how it stayed airborne. Because they lost two of their engines, they were running on about 40% power. They couldn't keep up with the rest of the formation. They were left on their own, which meant that all the German fighters were coming after them wave after wave of attacks. Finally, they left the fighters behind, except for one. One fighter came up. They only had two working guns at that point. They couldn't reach the fighter. They couldn't shoot at him. The fighter came up, and he looked around at the plane. He flew underneath them, flew behind them, the perfect attack position. And then he settled on their left wing, almost touching the wing in close formation. And the German pilot escorted the old pub and its crew of wounded, dying men till he reached the coast of Europe, where he saluted the pilot and flew home. The, BC, the B-17, the bomber, made it back to England. They landed. And for over 20 years, the pilot, Charlie Brown, tried to find out who was flying that German aircraft. It wasn't until the 1980s when he sent out a, a, a general appeal through all the piloting networks that he finally found a guy. His name was Franz Stigler. And when he got a chance to meet Stigler, Brown said, why didn't you shoot us down? These are Stigler's words. When I served in North Africa, my commanding officer said that if I ever hear of you shooting at a man in a parachute, I will hunt you down and kill you myself. And when I saw your plane, the men wounded, the holes all over, the engines disabled, not flying home in a wing and a prayer, but basically flying home in a prayer, I thought they're flying in a parachute. And I could not shoot you down. So I flew my aircraft so close to you that the, the guys of the flat guns on the ground could not target you without hitting me. And when you reached safety, I left you and went back. That's the strong taking care of the weak. 
That is the enemy caring for someone who is not their friend. In the church, sometimes we have division. I have seen good friends become angry with another and rifts develop that are unnecessary. That's not something unique to Ironworks. If you go back to the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, Yodia, and I appeal to you, Syntyche, be at peace with each other. Now, how can I remember those names without looking at, this, at the reference? It's simple. I appeal to you, Yodorus, and to you, soon touchy. Get a grip. Don't hold your righteousness to such a degree that you cannot forgive one another. That you cannot say, Christ has died for your sin. Be at peace. That person who angers you, or worse yet, whom you now hold in, with a, a cold detachment, the apathy that is the far side of hatred and the opposite of love, is their offense so great that you cannot forgive? So much greater than the sin that your heavenly Father has forgiven you. Do you see yourself as so much more righteous than the one who has offended you, qualified to pass disdainful judgment on the real sinners? Or have you been broken by your sin? Have you been convicted of your guilt? Aware that the only forgiveness, that only the forgiveness and grace that we find in Christ gives you hope and peace? Only in the awareness of the vastness of God's purifying forgiveness can you find the strength to forgive and love your enemies. Last point. Not only are our lives not our own, not only is our good not our own, but our glory is not our own. We tend to revel in and to display, to proclaim our own strength. There's a real temptation to point to ourselves and say, look at me. I'm great. Back where I'm come from, they say that the redneck's last words are, hey, y'all, watch this. Now, I'm told that up here, the local equivalent is, buddy, would you hold my beer for me? When you hear those words, you need to stand back because disaster is about to occur. We tend to be proud of our strength, to call attention to it, to boast of it, to use it to belittle others and bring glory to ourselves. But is that what real strength looks like? Those of you who know me might recognize that I, I really enjoy music. I enjoy listening to it. I enjoy watching it. And I especially enjoy creating it and playing it. I told you the last time that I spoke here that I would someday like to learn how to play the guitar. I feel the same way about playing bass. I've been playing since 1976. That's A.D., not B.C. And yet I'm continually learning more about music. Learning that I really don't know that much. Learning that I can't find my place. Learning that uh, there's a lot to understand that I've never grasped. I watched a video the other day of a bass player named Victor Wooten. If you've never heard of him, 
Look them up on YouTube. Look for, a, t- look for a, a song called, You Can't Hold No Groove If You Ain't Got No Pocket. Victor Wooten plays a piece with a, with a drummer that I look at that and think, he can't be doing that all himself, and yet I'm watching him. He's doing it all himself. And for 11 minutes, he's playing this incredible bass line all up and down the neck, using both hands in, in ways that nature never designed. And when he finishes, the crowd goes wild, a roar of applause. And Victor Wooten says two things. Thank you. And he turns around and points at his drummer and says, that's Kelly Graben. He immediately turned and gave glory to the man who made his performance possible. He didn't have to do that. But he wanted to make sure that people knew that he was not a superman. He was somebody, all that he did, all of his gifts could only flourish in the presence of another. So he pointed out Kelly. We tend to like to celebrate, you know, I go to church. My church does celebrate Christmas and Easter. My church has got cool musicians. Well, there's one I'm worried about. My church celebrates the Lord's Supper every week. My church is better than your church. We don't boast about our church. We boast about the Savior who gave himself for us. The Savior whose death covers our sins. The Savior whose life brings us to live with him. The Savior who brought all the promises of God and delivered them to us saying, believe in me and be a child of God. This is a Savior who is a strong, who took care of the weak. This is a Savior who gave the ultimate sacrifice Not so we could be better, but so that the dead could live. So that the blind could see. So that the deaf could hear the word of God. And so that those who were separated from God, his enemies and unable to be reconciled, could be brought near, could be forgiven, could be made his. This is what we celebrate when we come to the table. Do you remember Jesse Brown? The guy who attacked the school bus with the corn corn stalk? In 1948, he joined the U.S. Navy. And at that time, people of color were not permitted to serve as officers or to lead. They could serve as mess stewards. He managed to get in a program where his color was not mentioned. He became the first black pilot of the United States Navy. An officer and a flyer in what had been a closed group. He became really good at his craft. He flew the F4U Corsair known as an ensign killer because it it was a dangerous plane, hard to fly. But for those who were skilled, an incredible machine. He flew close air support 
for the U.S. Marines. That meant when Marines were in trouble, they would get, call out and say, we need help. Here would come Jesse Brown and his Corsair with rockets and bombs and machine guns to clear out the enemy and to give relief for the men on the ground. In Korea, there was a battle called the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir where 30,000 Americans were surrounded by 120,000 Chinese communists. The goal of the Chinese was to wipe out the Americans. Jesse and his fellow pilots flew mission after mission after mission, dropping bombs, strafing, using rockets to try to give the men on the ground relief so they could withdraw bit by bit back towards safety. It was on one of those missions that Jesse was flying along with four other men when his wingmen said, Jesse, uh, you're, you're streaming fluid. When they looked, they realized that one of his fuel lines had been hit by what they call a golden BB. Small arms fire from the ground normally can't hurt an aircraft. But infantrymen oftentimes will send off as much fire as they can when a plane passes overhead in the hopes that something will hit somewhere. This paid off. Jesse's plane lost oil, lost fuel, and he realized he would not be able to make the 100 miles or more back toward safety. So he crashed his Corsair in the middle of a snow-covered field. It looked okay from the air, but when he hit the ground, it was a field full of rock. Tore his plane to pieces. Trapped him. His wingman, Tom Hudner, crashed his own Corsair behind Jesse to try to get Jesse out of a burning plane to rescue his friend. Jesse was trapped. They couldn't pull him out of the aircraft. Even when the helicopter came, the pilot and Tom could not free Jesse. Tom expected that he would be sitting there comforting Jesse, telling him it was going to be okay, you know, be strong. Instead, Jesse was comforting Tom. He said, don't worry. God has this under control. You see, Jesse was Christian. And in his faith, he knew that even should he die, leaving his wife a widow, leaving his daughter an orphan, God had this. And in the midst of his extreme trial, Jesse comforted Tom until the freezing cold and blood loss caused him to die. What an inversion of the strong taking care of the weak. You would think that Tom, the white guy, the man from a position of privilege and riches would have been the one who extended something to Jesse. But no, Jesse, the sharecropper's son, the one who had nothing, comforted the man who in reality had nothing. He gave him the word of the gospel. Do you see yourself as strong? Do you see yourself as having more than others? Show it. Care for the weak. Humble yourself. and Say, out of all that God has given me, I give to you. 
I belong to him. You are worth everything. Jesus has proven that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, when we think of ourselves as strong, standing on our own two legs, have everything in control, knock the wind out of our sails in your grace and love. Remind us that you are the one who is strong, not us. You are the one who is sufficient, not us. You are the one who cares. And through that, Lord, help us to share with others the grace and love and care that you've given us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.